we are going to be brought in to the end of David's life. Okay, when we ended first and second Samuel, first second Samuel ended with some songs that David had written. And these songs were most likely written towards the end of his life. And he's looking back and evaluating things. When we begin Kings, Kings begins with David pretty much an old man and about ready to die. So this is the passing of the crown. And the question is, who is going to become king? Now, we know the answer, but if you're reading this for the first time, this is why I've mentioned this before. Do the best that you can to erase everything you've ever known and try to get back into it as if you've never read this before with fresh eyes. King David was very old. Even when they covered him with blankets, he could not get warm. His servants advised him, a young virgin must be found for our master, the king, to take care of the king's needs and to serve as his nurse. She can also sleep with you and keep our master, the king, warm. So they looked through all of Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very beautiful, and she became the king's nurse and served him, but the king did not have sexual relations with her. Now, the question is, what's going on? David is very old. And we know now, when you get old, your body has a hard time of keeping warm. That's a struggle. But when you literally have no body heat whatsoever, and you can't stay warm in any kind of way, you're getting very close to death's door. And I don't mean like minutes or hours or weeks. It might be longer, but you're, you're getting there. Now, today we can get heating blankets and crank up the thermostat to like 85 degrees even on a summer day and that kind of stuff, and it's fine. But in the ancient world, the nights get cold out in the desert, and most of their buildings are built out of stone, and those get really cold and keep the cold really well. And the only way to heat that up is to build a fire, but fire is wood, and wood is extremely expensive, rare in the ancient world, and costs money. So... If you've done anything on survival techniques, one of the first things they tell you is if you're like in the middle of nowhere with nothing and somebody is dying of hypothermia, then you're to strip down to your underwear and jump in a sleeping bag with them because your body heat is literally the only thing. Now, I know with some people it's like, well, that's kind of awkward, uncomfortable. That's better than death, though. <laughs> Remember when I took some survival classes, that's the first thing I mentioned is like body heat is the only thing that you have. And in body heat, enclosed in a space, remember the sleeping bag is not what keeps you warm. It's the trapping your body heat around you that keeps you warm, mostly. I mean, it does a little bit, but it's mostly the trapping your body heat. David can't keep warm. Now, at this point, they know this means that he's pretty close to death, especially in the ancient world without modern-day medicine and all that kind of stuff and prolonging you in the comforts of modern-day beds and blankets and all that kind of stuff. So they want to find a woman to keep him warm. But they're doing two things with this. They're not just interested in keeping him warm. They have to find a beautiful virgin. And the question is, like, why? why? What does it matter what she looks like? And what does it matter if she's a virgin? If they're just, she's just there to keep him warm. And David has lots of wives. Why can't they get in bed with him? Why can't Bathsheba get I mean, she, she's his favorite. Why can't they get in bed with him and keep him warm? But notice that twice it says she was beautiful. Let's find somebody beautiful. She was beautiful. And they emphasize the virginity. Now, they're marrying her to him. This is a marriage. So this is becoming another wife that he has. 
Now, to his credit, you're like, well, he doesn't have much say in this matter. He's just like bedridden. So it's not like he has much power to reject this. But the question that they're asking here is, it's a virility test. It's a question of whether he's still a man or not. And if he's not a man anymore, he doesn't have the right to rule anymore. Now, in the world's definition of a man, a man is the person who has the ability to conquer both military or women, right? I mean, when you watch movies, the way they portray powerful men is that they can dominate other people on the battlefield or the sports field or the business world, and they always have lots of beautiful women around them. In the locker room, guys are bragging about how they were better than everybody else on the soccer field that day and how many women they've been with during the weekend. And every single time, that's what you see all the time. Hollywood makes it clear. Businessmen make it clear. Presidents make it clear that power is the ability to control and conquer and dominate other people on the battlefield or the business world and to take women and take them as your own. And that's the world's definition. That's not the biblical definition. That's the world's definition. And the best way to figure out whether you're a man or not is if you can still sleep with women or not. Now, why does she have to be a beautiful woman? Because she has to be a beautiful woman because that's more tempting for um, David. But she has to be a virgin because it can't just be one of his wives. Because the only way to know that he's actually had sex with them is one of two ways. To see if she's still a virgin or not, or that the wives say, yeah, he had sex with me tonight. But the wives are his wives. And they might be willing to lie and say, yes, he had sex with me tonight because they want to keep him on the throne because it's her husband. And they know that if, even if they don't like him, which is very possible when you have that many women as your wives, they know, though, that if he dies, they're going to be pushed off to the side by whether the next king comes along. And he's either going to diminish them to nothing or ostracize them in some home where they'll never see anybody or possibly even rape them or just kill them. So even if you don't like your husband king, you still want him to sit on the throne because you have no idea what son is going to come and what he's going to do to you. So you can't trust the wise, and the only way you can know he's slept through him is that they're a virgin, and they will check every time that she comes out of the bed. And if he doesn't have sex with her, he's no longer a man, and he's not fit to rule anymore. Now you say, that's jacked up and shallow. And I would say, amen. But don't we see that all the time? in the media, and in Hollywood movies, and all that kind of stuff. That's the world's definition of a man. And this is what they're doing. This is why the minute it says that he did not have sexual relationships with her, the very next thing it says, Now Adonijah, son of David, and Haggith was promoting himself, saying, I will be king. You wonder why that immediately comes after the first statement? You're like, those have nothing to do with each other. Oh, yeah, they do. The minute his son realizes my dad can't do it anymore, he's no longer a man, it's time for me to be a king. They need a man. And we're going to see this with Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He's going to be like, I'm a man. And he's going to say it in a very crass way. Because this is about manhood and the world's definition. And so he says this, I'm going to be king. Now notice Did God appoint Adonijah as king? Is this a godly reason why you should become king? No. 
He is picking kingship more like an ancient Near Eastern despot than he is biblically through the prophet. What should have happened is they should have gone to the prophet and they should have asked who picked who is the next king. But instead he says, my dad is not a man, I'm going to be king. And then the first thing he does is what? What does he do? Verse 5, now Adonijah, son of David, and Haggath was promoting himself, boasting, prideful, I will be king. He managed to acquire chariots and horsemen, as well as 50 men to serve as his royal guard. What's the first thing he does? He gets horses and chariots. He violates the Deuteronomic regulations for the king. Has the narrator said this guy is a bad guy and shouldn't be king yet? Not directly, but has he? Yes. If you know Deuteronomy, if you don't know Deuteronomy and you don't know about virility tests in the ancient world, you'll be like, oh, he's David's son. David's old. Shouldn't he be king? But then when you realize he's prideful, he's announcing himself as king, he's bypassed the prophet, he's collecting horses and chariots, and he's going around and announcing this, all based on a world's definition of manhood, he's not the guy that the narrator, the prophet, or Yahweh wants as king. And all we're, we only got one verse on him, and we already know that. One verse on him. Now, the other thing is, he looks a lot like Absalom. In the book of Samuel, that's exactly what Absalom did. When he came back from to his dad, he got a chariot and 50 men. He began to ride around, and he began to win the hearts of the Israelites. So he's doing exactly what his older brother had done. The problem is, he didn't learn from his older brothers smashing into failure. He is the next in line. David's firstborn son was Abnon. Abnon raped his sister and Absalom killed him in revenge. That was Daniel, or 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 14. The next born in line was Kiliab. Kiliab must have died at a young age in some way because he doesn't really show up ever in the stories. The next was Absalom, but he died when Joab javeled him Many, many, many times. The next in line is Adonijah. So he's following court customs, ancient Near Eastern customs. Then it says this. Now his father had never rebuked him or corrected him by saying, why do you such things? He was also very handsome and had been born right after Absalom. His father had never, ever disciplined him in his life. He is an extremely wealthy man, the wealthiest man in all the kingdom because he's the king's son. He has power because he's a king's son. And he has no discipline whatsoever from his parents. And he's incredibly good looking. And he's basing kingship on a world's definition of manhood. He is your absolute Hollywood stereotypical football jock. And I'm not saying all football players are like that, but that Hollywood stereotypical football jock. That's who he is. He is the furthest thing away from godly kingship that you could find in the entire land, other than being like a mass murderer, which who knows, maybe he would have been. This is what he lets you know. He collaborated with Joab's son Zariah and with Abiathar the priest, and they supported him. Now, here's his two supporters. Now, remember Joab. Joab was David's right-hand general. And he was the guy who was, he just killed. He liked killing. Now, a lot of times he killed because he wanted to keep himself in power very selfishly. 
and other times he killed because he was absolutely loyal to David, even willing to disobey what David wanted because he thought what was good for David was what he wanted. Like, he was like, no, David, I know what's better for you than you do. So I will go out and kill these people, even though you told me not to. And David kept him around because David didn't like him. He didn't trust him. He was scared around him. But Joab would get his hands dirty for David, and David wouldn't have to get his hands dirty. And so he kept him around for convenience of keeping his hands free. It's like the red dwarf of Stalin's right-hand henchman. Stalin didn't do a lot of the killing. The red dwarf did for him. So... Like the red dwarf, that's what he was called. He was a dwarf, and he was called red because he killed so many people for Stalin. So he is the bloody hands of David, so to speak. Abiathar, remember, was the priest from the book of Samuel. And basically we had the house of Eli at the very beginning. And he was corrupt and twisted, and his sons Phineas and Hophni were corrupt and twisted. And God pronounced a judgment that everyone in the line of Eli's house would no longer be priests, and they would die at a young age. And then later Saul came along and he massacred practically the entire family of Eli's house in a paranoia, schizophrenic moment. And Abiathar got away. He was one of the very few descendants of Eli got away. And he went into hiding with David and David appointed him as his own personal priest, which was not biblical of David because it violated the prophecy of God. But he stayed really loyal and really true to David all throughout the book of Samuel, and everything he seemed to do was pretty godly. So even though he's under the judgment of God, as a household family thing goes, at the same time he seemed to be very godly. And you almost get the picture now that God is no longer going to kill him because God also has grace. Because here's the thing, a lot of times God will pronounce judgment, but sometimes he'll stay his judgment for certain people because he's also a God of mercy and grace. Remember, David should have died. The law said that the punishment for murder was death. But God let him live because grace can trump the law. Whenever God wants to, grace can trump the law. The law is not the highest authority. God's character and love is the highest authority. There is a sense now that maybe Abiathar is okay to be priest. Now, these two guys are backing him. Now, somewhat to their credit, David has not directly publicly picked an heir yet. And culturally speaking, Adonijah is the next guy. It could be that all the other kings, Job doesn't see fit, all the other sons of David. Remember, Job wants a man too. And he might be looking at all of David's sons and thinking, they're not cut out for kingship. I want a man who can carry a sword. And so he's citing, he's not betraying David because David's about ready to die. This is David's firstborn son. He's a pretty manly guy. Why not support him? I'm being loyal to David, and I kind of do what I want to do. Same time, Abiathar might be supporting him because he's a part of the culture too. Remember, the house of Eli was definitely a cultural house of priests, and so he's just following the culture. So one could argue this is just the way things are done in the culture. And we've probably said that a lot ourselves. This is just the way things are done. This is just the way, without really critiquing, is it biblical though? It might be biblical, but it might not. But that's just the way things are done in America. Like, well, that's just how business is done. That, that, that's just how you do contracts. That's just how you do courts cases. And you're like, yeah, but that's not right. They just are fitting into the culture and they're just doing what is natural. On the other side, they have opposition. Zadok the priest. 
Now, when David came back from running away from Absalom and Absalom was dead and he took the throne again, he appointed Zadok as priest. Zadok was a descendant of Eleazar. Okay, so um, Aaron had four sons. Two of them died in the book of Numbers. And he had two sons, Eleazar and Ithamar. Eli was a descendant of Ithamar. But Zadok was a descendant of Eleazar. So he was not under the same priestly household judgment that Eli was under. So he actually has more of a biblical right to be priest because he's not under the judgment. Benaiah also showed up as a general after David was on the run from Absalom, and he was becoming the, the new Joab. Not the new Joab in a you're a really evil kind of a guy, but you're going to be the next general. So he's a younger general who's beginning to be promoted. Jehoiadad, who we're not really given a lot of information about. Nathan the prophet... Shimei and Ray, who are two people that helped David while he was on the run, and David's elite warriors, or in other words, his Praetorian Guard or Secret Service. They're siding with him. The first question you ask is, who's the prophet with? And it's not Adonijah. One thing I'll say is, the who the prophet is with is most likely the right person. But as we keep reading, you're going to find out, yeah, but we can't always trust the prophet, because he's a sinner as well. So they did not ally themselves. So verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep and cattle and fattened steers at the stone of Zeheleth near Enrogel. And he invited his brothers and the king's sons as well as the men of Judah and the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, and the elite warriors of his brother Solomon. So he had a huge sacrificial festival and he intentionally did not invite the prophet of God. So right there that lets you know Not only did he not consult the prophet, but he doesn't want the prophet anywhere near him. And the only way you can truly be king after you obeyed the five regulations of the Deuteronomic regulation for the king is if you're working side by side with the prophet. He's immediately pushed him aside. Right now, this is basically the icing on the cake why he should not be king. But notice that he's sacrificing. Where is he sacrificing? Stone of Enrogel. Where did I tell you the tabernacle was? Gibeon. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? Jerusalem. Is this either one? So he's sacrificing in a high place. But if you don't know Deuteronomy and you don't know where the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is, you don't realize that that's a bad thing. A lot of people might read it and think, oh, he's sacrificing God, right? But he's sacrificing where God specifically told him not to sacrifice. And he doesn't care. Everything about this is this is not a Deuteronomic king. This is not a Deuteronomic king. And everybody, you th- and right now, he is a powerful, dominant male. And what we know about human history, they usually get what they want. And they become kings. And right now, as a reader, you're really nervous. You're really nervous. What in the world is going to happen to our country if he becomes president? 